0: Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out people of product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing and for any side sleepers like me it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways if you're a side sleeper I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself.
1: My goals. You're in my way. You're a barrier. And What we explore in that course is recognizing that we can't have innovation, we can't have creativity, we can't have learning, we can't have growth, we can't have successful competition without being open to differences. And so how do we encourage those differences and then create an environment where people can talk through those differences in a productive way? So again, back to our experiences
0: So I've actually thought about having you on for a few years, so I'm glad this worked out. Let's talk just a little bit of, of your background, and then I think we really want to focus on high-performance teams today, but we spent our time together as, as a, well, you were CEO of Utah Transit Authority, and how big was the staff at the time when you were in charge?
1: There were 2,700 employees by the time I left.
0: Yeah. And, so a
1: pretty good-sized organization. Yeah.
0: And I mean, all your other stuff, consulting, teaching at the University of Utah, all this... But was it like $8 billion in assets that you're in charge of there? Is my number close?
1: Yeah, that's right on. Okay. That's right on.
0: S- so one of the reasons that, well, there's a few reasons I wanted to have you on, but can you talk, you know, not everybody knows these things. You, you guys won like a lot of awards as far as transit authorities across the country.
1: Yeah. So during the time I was there, we were recognized as the outstanding public transit system in North America four times. And we were the first to, you know, rack up that kind of a record. And it was a great organization to be part of. And we accomplished a lot and, and made a difference in the community. So, yeah, we, we did a lot of really innovative things. And, you know, we'll have a chance maybe to talk about a few of those today.
0: Sure. You know, I think one of the reasons that, that I enjoyed spending time with you is you've just got such a passion for leadership. And you're, you have a reputation not just for being thoughtful about what should happen, But for approaching your teams in a way that was highly magnetic, you know, the nature of being, you know, owning our consulting firm is you get to see a lot of what the leader says. And then you get a lot hear a lot of what the team says when the leader's not around. And you had such a above average percentage of people that were on like Team Jerry. And I think that's a real testament to to the way you treated them when nobody was watching. So, so it makes me more interested in your thoughts on these kind of things because I know they're not just theories.
1: Well, thanks for that. I was, I have been, and still I am a student of organizations, and you know I have been my whole career. And so, taking some time to step away from the job and reflect and study. So, you know, continuing to teach at the university has been part of my learning curve. And I'll have to say, Jess, you know, I worked at the transit authority for 34 years. So that means I was there long enough to have the mistakes of my youth come back and slap me in the face. (laughs) And that was, that was important learning because I recognized that sometimes the things we did were shortcuts to control costs that had long-term damage to the organization culture. And, you know, I was there long enough to set a lot of those things right. And then I really like working with people and building capabilities of people. And I would do that anyway, just because it's fun and it's, it's rewarding. It turns out it actually makes organizations perform much better also. So you have that side benefit to it.
0: Well, over the years, you and I have talked a lot about lean. We've talked about marketing and attracting people. We've talked about a number of things, but specifically when it comes to high performance teams, how do you define that? What does that mean to you?
1: So when I think about a vision for the perfect kind of team and the perfect organization of teams, it's an environment where people take initiative. They take responsibility for innovation. They are self-organizing. They're learning. They're autonomous. And they're aligned to the organization purpose and strategy. So we, a lot of us have had Opportunities in our life and in our career to be in a situation like that, and if you have, you know what it feels like. There's a synergy, there's a collaboration, and a responsibility to the team and to the mission, and and everybody's pulling in the same direction. And when that happens, you're able to achieve an organizational or a team flow state where you're not worried about you know getting credit or. Uh, short term results, you're really caring about each other and, and about the purpose. So when I think about a high performing organization, it has all of those things. And it's the kind of place where people bring all of themselves to work and the best of themselves to work. And ideally, they're able to even become their best selves at work.
0: Yeah, you know, like you said, you had you had quite the tenure there. As you look at both lessons you know, look at the lessons of of all the leaders that you you watched on your rise up to the top top job. What are a couple of things that you learned that you didn't want to do and a couple of things that you knew you definitely did want to do?
1: Well, I had the benefit of growing up in the organization and doing a bunch of different jobs while I was there. So I worked the first 20 years or so of my career in human resources. And the nice thing about that is you look at the organization from a perspective of people. And if it's a service organization where you know, the bulk of your costs are labor, that's a great way to really understand the business essentials. And then I had the opportunity about every four or five years to move into a new area and you know, I moved into marketing and community relations, and then I was part of a team that created a performance office that was all about process and performance improvement and metrics and business analytics. And then I moved from there into being the chief operating officer and, and ultimately a CEO. And that career path forced me to not be the expert. You know, the last time I was an expert was like in or at least I thought I was, you know, <laughs> was was 25 years ago and you know I had been in human resources for a long time and knew knew a lot about that. So having had that pattern of change and learning in my career forced me to listen to people who were doing the work and what I learned is that there is an enormous storehouse of expertise expertise and knowledge and passion in every organization and most of the time that's kind of left to waste and so you know as i kind of moved through different leadership roles that was a priority for me to tap into that both because i had to i had to you know rely on people to teach me the details of each of each department and operation but also because there were opportunities for innovation and growth and learning and as as you saw when we were working together on issues at UTA we were able to tap into that and harvest that employee passion and knowledge over and over again for big improvements that made a difference to customers and taxpayers across the board
0: yeah you know one of the thoughts that it makes me think about is like you you're very good at making people feel listened to, making people feel heard, making people feel involved. And then, in other times, I saw you kind of lead where maybe some other folks were timid. You know, can you talk about? You know, I'm thinking about when we were when we were working on inventing some ideas of you know how could you guys embrace electrification and autom you know automated vehicles and and some of the the changes that are happening in the world of transport. And so I'm interested in this balance of How you help everybody feel heard, how you bring everyone along with you, and then your decision tree to know when, no, I just need, I need to get out in front and show them and and how you make that decision of, you know, when it's time to like go fast and go ahead so they can see you versus bring everyone the whole way along.
1: Employees are a great source of knowledge and innovation, and they are the experts in their process but a lot of times they are not going to see the opportunities that are just over the horizon at a strategic level. You know, how an organization can better position itself relative to its competitors or how we can leverage new technologies or, you know, disruptions that come about through combining technologies. So, I think that on the one hand we really need to respect and rely on the wisdom of people doing the work on the other hand the ceo is going to have a, a vantage point you know that shows what's possible what's coming what some risks are and and that's the job of the ceo and the board is to see those things and make some decisions and take some risks because there's a there's a trap There, that I think you've kind of highlighted with your question, which is if we're only looking to the employees doing the work for all of our sources of innovation, we're definitely going to get some benefit. And if the employees are close to customers, there may be some innovations relative to producing customer value, but they're not going to be able to see what's possible and what's coming. And so, as you and I worked on a little bit at UTA, there's a dramatic revolution that has started in transportation and it's related to technology, electric, autonomous, connected vehicles, smartphone apps, and all of that. And it was important that we position the agency to get on the right trajectory and to start taking steps to experiment with and and prove out those technologies. So yeah, I think the CEO and the leadership team has to always be doing that. And if I can keep going on this point, because I think there's a... There's a, a dimension here that, that I wanted to share. In doing that, sometimes what happens is you disrupt the employee's connection to purpose. So for example, employees who've been working in you know, staying with the transit example, employees who've been working and providing fixed route bus service through neighborhoods may see investments in autonomous vehicles or on-demand service as a threat to their customers or themselves or their jobs, and they've kind of created an identity for themselves around, you know, I'm, I'm doing this important work and I'm serving customers and I'm creating value. And, and when we disrupt that, it's also the job of the CEO and the leadership team to explain and articulate the new direction and vision in a way that enables employees to continue to have that sense of purpose and value in the work they do. And that that's that's hard work but we, we can't move so fast that we leave all the employees behind and they say oh that you know darn CEO we're going in a new direction and none of us like it and I was working with a, a consulting client last year and this exact thing had had happened and they they had implemented some changes in technology and the way they were configuring their work and they had this group of employees who had invested so much time and effort in building relationships with one, subset of their customers. And the the change was going to lump those customers in with another group of customers. They lost their passion and their sense of purpose because they didn't think they, the company was making the right decision. So there's work to do on the part of the executive leadership, and it's something that we were working on. You've got to bring people along and explain the reasons why. There's a bigger purpose here, and we have lots of customers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things one of the biggest observations or things that impressed me the most when we were working on that together was I have you heard of this term coopetition? Have you heard people say that before? No, You can pretty much guess what it means, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I look at this. You guys have got billions of dollars of trains and buses and tax money in this and whatever. And there could be such a temptation to just defend what you've already got. And. Or, or to, you know, you see the mistakes that so many incumbents make of trying to block new competitors or things like this. And I was, uh, I was really pleasantly surprised and kind of inspired when you were saying like, well, we should see if we can give some of our money to those guys. We should see if we can take this money and give it to them. And they could be our last mile service for those folks in those places that it is not the best use of the taxpayer dollar to drive a bus <laughs> that extra route for one family you know and like the experiments that you wanted to run i remember when we were like thinking well we're never going to get approvals for these autonomous vehicles to do this and this but remember you know look at where all those tech companies are down on silicon slopes what if we could just run a service within a parking lot across all those different facility, you know all those big giant office buildings and never be on the public roads and we don't have to get and i just liked the like thinking outside the box of of both like how can we try stuff instead of taking no for an answer, but also this, like, how can we, how can we get these, you know, potential threats to our existing existence? How can we make them part of the family instead of the enemy? And, you know, especially this idea of sharing money, that's not one you hear a lot. And I could just see like how genius it was as soon as you said it.
1: You know, if you can get someone else to solve your problems for you or solve some of your most difficult or expensive problems by, you know, giving them a little help. You know, I think that's that's good business. You know, we we've, we've talked before about why more organizations don't do more of this and why things like lean kind of get stuck and you know, I think one of the reasons that is illustrated by this example is we don't talk enough about the purpose and the strategic intent of the organization. We've gotta always be reminding people, the reason we exist is to make the world a better place in these ways. And however we do that is, is okay if it's ethical and you know responsible and so on. And our reason for being is not to be the manager of this function and to you know, process our work in the most you know, high-tech way. It's, it's all, all of those organization departments exist to serve a larger purpose that extends outside the boundaries of the organization. And again, it's the leader's job to continue to remind people of that because we get focused on our department, our function, whatever it is that we're you know, spending eight hours a day doing. You know, I'll, I'll share a little example. When I was human resource director, there was one month. This is a long time ago, but there was one month when both Fortune and Forbes had cover stories that basically said, "Kill the human resources department. It doesn't add value. It's bureaucratic waste." And and the you know the rationale behind the articles was what I was just talking about. It's kind of this inward focused processing. Transactional, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That was a great uh, wake-up call for me and my team. So we used that as a theme for a retreat. We spent a full day aside saying how much of that is true about us, and if so, what should we do about it. The outcome of that retreat was we decided we we're going to invest a lot of our time and energy on things that would really pivot the organization in a positive way. One was to fix some trust busters inside the organization that were keeping people from being engaged and it really came down to we had created a two tier employee classification system with radically different benefits and pay it was a short sighted you know mistake that we never should have done it saved a bunch of money but in the long term cost a lot and then the other thing we decided to take on was facilitating our board of directors in creating a strategic plan because we were confused as a whole agency about what the purpose and strategy was. And if we could help them get clear, then we could all be more effective. So that experience stuck with me because I realized that, you know, something as maybe low impact as the human resources department can make a huge difference in the organization's effectiveness. And it took us more than two years to get those things done. But you you could look at every department inside any large organization. And you could see this same symptom where people are looking at optimizing their process, they're focused on their rules. And it's the job of the leader to keep pulling people out of that mindset and pointing toward the horizon and the and the purpose.
0: Yeah, you know, I know it's kind of off topic, but one of the thoughts that came to mind as you were talking there was I was thinking, You know, you do have so many experiences across the organization, you have so many relationships, you know, being the chief operating officer, you know, for people not familiar with your structure is really like the number two at the agency, you know, and, and yet, I'm sure there was changes about being CEO, even after all that time and all that experience. What, what were some things about being CEO you didn't expect?
1: Well, I remember one of my executive team members, I've been CEO for maybe two weeks, and she came in and said, Jerry, I need to remind you that you speak with a megaphone. Everything you say is so much bigger than it was before you were CEO. So people take every word out of your mouth and it's, you know, Gospel. it becomes a directive. Yeah. And that was really important for me to learn because, you know, I'm used to talking a lot and having people, you know, take or dismiss a lot of what I say, but that was really good advice for me. And I I find that people abused that a little bit in the organization where if I would say something, I would hear it coming back to me two weeks later saying, yeah, Jerry told us to do this. And well, I, I didn't really say to do that. I said, you know, I'm thinking that maybe we should pay attention to this thing. So I guess that was that was something that was a little bit unexpected. The other thing that's unexpected, I mean I knew this already but just didn't appreciate the volume of it, the amount of time that is not your own when you're a CEO of a large organization, if you have shareholders or if it's a public service organization where you have a board of trustees and you know the transit authority operates in over 80 cities and six counties and so all of those people and the state legislature, all of them have an interest and a say in how you do your work. So that was, that was sobering just to appreciate that your time and your life is not so much your own. And for somebody like me who really enjoys working in the organization with people, that was hard because I just, you know, the job wasn't that. So those those are a couple things. I, I'm grateful for the experience and I'm so proud of what we accomplished as an organization. But I'm really glad now to be doing consulting and and teaching. And, and it, what are it what gives me a chance to teaching? share?
0: What classes are you teaching lately?
1: So I teach a workshop called Leadership from a position of limited power. And I've been doing that both in open enrollment and custom courses within organizations really since, since I left UGA three years ago. And I also teach a course pretty regularly on conflict resolution. And what that course is really about is how we can encourage and embrace positive conflict so that we can innovate and grow and learn in organizations with each other. So those are the two that I'm teaching most often right now. And occasionally I'll have consulting clients ask me to do kind of custom, you know, things for their executive teams.
0: Well, can you teach us one principle from each of those classes?
1: Yeah, sure. So leading from a position of limited power, that course has turned out to be really popular. We started with some clients who had asked for it. So we did custom courses within some companies, and then we started offering it for open enrollment and it's kind of taken off because that's a topic that so many organizations are trying to figure out how to do. I'm teaching that from the perspective of the employee. So there's a leadership component to how you create that environment. And then there's the, the employee component. This will uh, be familiar with what we were just talking about. So I have three, three keys to leading from a position of limited power. One is knowledge. And it's knowledge about the business strategy and it's knowledge about your place in the organization and the dependencies and those kinds of things. And then, of course, you need to have some knowledge about the the work that you're doing. So the second key to leading from a position of limited power is character. And what that's about is knowing who you are and being true to yourself and being able to behave and operate from a center of um, strength and consistency that you have decided and committed to. Or yourself. And we all know people who have that strong center, and we know that we're drawn to them. And we know people who don't. So second point is character, the third point is influence. So how do we have influence in organizations? And I focus on several things, but one of the ways we build influence is by building relationships. And you know that's part of creating a bedrock culture for high-performing organizations. It's a leading with respect and humility and building relationships. So when you talk about, you know, what you observed, that there were a lot of people who, you know, kind of were on Jerry's team and, you know, were very loyal and supportive. That can't happen overnight. That comes about by investing in relationships sincerely and authentically over a long period of time. And so these are people I know and love and care about. And, you know, I think when you have that over time, it, you know, it shows up in how people behave and, and as you said, how they behave when you're not there. Yeah. So you said, teach you one thing. I think that was maybe three, but so do you want me to give you a little snippet from the conflict course too?
0: You know, I want to stay here for a second. I I thought it was interesting that you talked about knowledge because I think so many of us, we, we get tempted to stop at the knowledge of what we're an expert on or knowing even more about that. And yet, you know, and I, th- I feel like this relates to influence. I'd be interested to have you weigh on on it, but I can say like, you know, whether it's department of defense, whether it's for-profit companies, startups, whatever, those individuals who get where the whole organization is going and can articulate not just their role in that, but everybody else's in the, everybody else's role who's at this table, right? Like mm-hmm. there's like a, an instant authority, that, that they receive, at least by the people who have the final say, or at least the veto, <laughs> the veto power, right? Mm-hmm. When when it's clear that they're not just speaking from self-interest or defending their department or their own job or whatever, and and they can articulate things in terms of the team sport, we're all playing together. I mean, talk about in- instant leadership, regardless of whether you've got the title or not, right? Because then it becomes about yeah. logic. like. Here is my logic about the team sport we're all playing. Don't argue with my job title, argue with my logic. I don't know. Do you see it differently? Yeah.
1: No, I think that's a really critical point. And that's something that managers and leaders should be doing, kind of framing and providing meaning to the work. But it's something that people can do to show leadership regardless of their job title. And just as you've observed, the people who are able to do that get the attention of their colleagues and peers, as well as the attention of of the higher ups. And one of the things that makes that so influential, which you pointed out, is it's not self-serving. It's serving the customer, It's serving the client, it's serving the investor. And it's reminding everyone we're here for a purpose that goes beyond us. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's a really um, important element from leading from a for leading from a position of limited power.
0: That's great. Well, yeah, I want to hear a conflict resolution one. Let's go there.
1: Okay. So one of the things that we explore in in that workshop is what our attitudes are about conflict. We tend to see conflict as a negative thing and it's uncomfortable. It brings up negative emotions and we want to resolve or manage conflict. And what I help people to recognize and discover is that conflict, small c, is really a difference a difference of perspective, a difference of background, and sometimes we let that conflict turn into conflict with a big C, which is there's a difference, and because of that difference, you are impeding my ability to meet my goals. You're in my way. You're a barrier, and what we explore in that course is recognizing that we can't have innovation. We can't have creativity. We can't have learning. We can't have growth, We can't have successful competition without being open to differences. And so how do we encourage those differences and then create an environment where people can talk through those differences in a productive way? So, again, back to our experiences at UTA, when we started putting employees together to do cross-functional problem solving, to, to tackle some really nasty challenges in the agency, we were unprepared for how much conflict we created with that. And, you know, for the first time ever, shop floor mechanic is able to speak directly to the director of finance about things. And um, maybe their team was going to work on uh, parts availability, but not surprisingly, what this guy wanted to talk about was his pension benefit. And so we created this forum where all kinds of chaos erupted and people could you know for the first time express points of view and it took us a long time to recognize that that didn't mean this process was broken that meant that we were not experienced with this kind of dialogue across boundaries and across levels and so we had to find a way to take people safely through that conflict and chaos and sometimes personal attacks and you know real negativity to the other side where you had all those perspectives being applied to the problem of the organization.
0: What's an example of that? What's an example of helping somebody safely navigate if they do feel personally attacked, whether they were or weren't?
1: So we had professional facilitators walking people through that. And sometimes you just need to cool off and bring people back to talking about the issues as opposed to talking about the, the personalities or the people. And one of the things that ended up being most effective for us was just preparing people at the front end that you're going to go through this. There's going to be a time when you feel like somebody has offended you or misunderstood you, and it's going to feel crappy and you're going to be mad. And so get ready for that. And when that happens, remind yourself. And if we have to take a break and and move away from it. You know, it's the job of the facilitators to kind of keep an eye on those things. And sometimes they would just send the group home for the day. You know, we've kind of gotten as far as we can go and things are getting ugly. We're going to come back again tomorrow. And they would give people sometimes reflective exercises they could do to help them come back in the right frame of mind. So in this in this workshop, we also learn a lot of specific techniques for how we can communicate with others in a way that gets through to them and is respectful to them. So that's also part of it too.
0: That's great. You know, another thought that I'm interested in your opinion on. You know, you look at the way that it's become popular to dump on tech companies in the media these days. You know, and some of it's deserved, some of it's probably deserved, and some of it's probably not deserved. You know. Some of it is some poor choices made on some of those companies' leadership teams. And some of it is because, you know, a reporter can probably make a name for themselves because it's popular. It's popular to dump on those guys, right? So yeah. when you think about, you know, some of the challenges to do with in, in winning, winning public opinion, winning with the press, things like this, what are a couple of principles that you have for CEOs listening today?
1: Well, it is certainly the case that organizations sometimes through fault of their own, but sometimes not just because of being really high profile and being in a, in an industry where you have friends and enemies, maybe it's CEOs can be easy targets. And, you know, I don't want to excuse any bad behavior, but as, as you say, it's a way that reporters and media professionals can get attention. You know, if you focus, if you write a story on a famous person, you're going to get more attention. So some of this is counterintuitive and, you know, I lost a lot of sleep over the years as a public transit CEO, because in most big cities, the media love to hate transit. You can find something every single day that they've done wrong. And, you know, if you're in a big city like Washington, D.C., you've got full-time reporters who are assigned just to report every day on on the transit agency. So chances are they're going to be looking for things to be critical of you about. and, And I think that you're not going to stop that as a CEO. So my advice and kind of lessons learned a little bit the hard way. You know, the first thing is we had to be very assertive about creating our own opportunities for positive press and, you know, never let up on that. But anytime there's a chance to talk about good things that we're doing, especially from the standpoint of customers and members of the public whose lives were improved because you know we're providing a service. The second thing, and this was the counterintuitive thing, I learned that it's better to be open and transparent with the media. And so when they ask for things, we provide it. And even if they're going to write a nasty story about it, The longer you withhold or make them jump through hoops, you know, what would happen is then the story would turn into transit authority refuses to disclose or transit authority is making these nonprofits, you know, pay thousands of dollars to copy documents. And, you know, it just it just didn't work. And so it was a better strategy for us to be open and transparent and as much as possible, provide information before they asked. So if they want to know how the organization is performing, what the financials are, the, you know, ridership, all that stuff is available up front. So, you know, it's one of the things that I enjoy about being a consultant is being out of that spotlight.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Too funny. Well, those are great. Those are great uh, principles in there. Obviously uh, a hard one. You know, I, I was, I was there at the offices some days when, when things were, when those were making, when that was making things tougher.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I wonder if you'd like to go back to kind of this, well, if if we're creating a high performing team, why does it matter? What, you know, what can you expect from that? So back to connecting people with the organization strategy, the business purpose and translating that in a meaningful way for people to do their job. So that was you know something I took on as a challenge when I became the chief operating officer is taking the agency purpose and strategic direction and translating it into actionable strategy for the operating business units. And this is a simple thing, but it's so profound. So, you know, I said, we we can't do everything. We know that we're here to make a difference for this community. And we do that by providing a quality service. And we do that By extending our public dollars as far as as we can, we do that by by being safe. And, you know, if, you know, lots of organizations don't have clear strategy, and I think without that, you can't have high-performing teams because people can't be focused. So it's kind of like, you know, going into your car and putting into your navigation system, I want to go everywhere. You know, your car's not going to back out of the driveway. So being clear about where we want to go and then translating that into actionable strategies that are relevant to the department or the business unit. So for us, it was just a handful of things, particularly on-time reliability. We knew that mattered to customers, and it was part of how we created value. The safety of our operation was a second thing. And a third one was our efficiency. So how much service we were able to put out for the dollars that we had. So within that, then each of the business units had a challenge to baseline their performance on those factors and then work with their employees to achieve continuous improvement. And you were working with us when a lot of this was going on, and I know that you experienced kind of the learning and growth of our management team as we were figuring out how to do this. So getting employees engaged in in improving outcomes on those factors, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, I remember the first time I went out to have a manager report to me on how they have improved their vehicle reliability. The manager walked me through each area and the manager explained everything. And the employees were there saying, yes, we're doing what he told us. And we've implemented these forms that he told us to implement. And you had the experience of also working with some of the great people at UTA after they had learned that the better way to get employees engaged is to go out and ask them what would make their job easier? What would eliminate barriers to them achieving their performance and having them come up with solutions that really reduce the effort, reduce the duplication, reduced waste in their work. So that was an important pivot for us to, instead of having managers and internal experts figure all this out and then tell people, it was really connecting them to the outcome that we cared about and then asking them to find ways to get there faster, easier, and safer. And sure enough, they, they told us. So my best example of what a high-performing work team and organization can do is related to this problem of vehicle reliability. We know it matters a lot for transit customers to be on time. We know that it's a terrible experience if you're on a bus or a train and it breaks down and you're sitting there you know, for an extended period of time, you miss your appointment or your transfer. We know that that's a real bad thing. So when we started this work of identifying some specific outcomes that mattered and then engaging employees to improve we were achieving industry top tier performance already in terms of our bus reliability. And we measure it in terms of miles between in-service failure of some kind. We're run along around 7,000, 8,000 miles between some kind of in-service issue. And that was good. That was good in the industry. And we'd worked for years with our bus manufacturers and our mechanical engineers on staff to refine our processes and our, preventive maintenance inspections to get to that level. So what does that look like when you turn everybody loose on that problem? Things that you would never think about as a manager, things that you would never think about as an engineer. So for example, when we ask our employees to to work on that problem, we had radio dispatchers tell us that they think they could prevent road calls or an in-service failure if we would give them a little more training about troubleshooting and maybe a little book that they could kind of look up things. And so they can talk with the driver as they're experiencing something and try some different things to keep that vehicle on the road. We had maintenance technicians come to us and say, you know, I think it might be helpful if we spend some time out in the intermodal centers and watch and listen to the buses as they come through and talk to the drivers. And maybe we could prevent some road calls or failures in that. We heard from fuelers, So their job is every day to fill the bus up with diesel and do a daily cleaning of the bus. And they came forward and said, we think we could help with this in-service failure. And what we'd like to do is start keeping track of anything we see that potentially could cause a failure. It's mostly like loose wires or light bulbs or things like that. And they said, we'd like to fix all those. Even though we're not mechanics, we think we have time. It's just, you know, tighten things up if it's within our skill set." We'd like to fix all those. So a couple of things happened with all this. One of the profound things that happened was when we put the mechanics out in the intermodal centers, they've developed a relationship with the drivers. They got to see what it was like for a driver to operate a bus with a seat that doesn't adjust. You know, you think, ah, come on, it's a seat. What's what's the problem? You get to sit down all day. Well, if you're a professional transit driver, that seat is really important. And it's part of how you say stay healthy and, you know, can get, get through the day. So. They're expensive seats with lots of adjustments. The the mechanic learned that if the door is slow to open and close, even if it's just a few seconds, that makes a huge difference in the driver's ability to stay on time and serve their customers. So it's a little bit of a side benefit, but what happened was the maintenance technicians started to see their job differently and started to appreciate and respect the hard work that the drivers had. There are a bunch more ingredients, but I'll cut to the chase here. And the result of all of that was we were able to take our miles between an in-service failure from seven to 8,000 miles to over 35,000 miles. So this is something when we would report it and share it with our colleagues in the industry, they would say, we don't believe it. It's impossible. Nobody could do that. Well, it's impossible if you're only looking at it as an engineering problem. It's perfectly possible if you look at it as something that 2,700 people are going to put their minds to. So that's, you know, I, I get um, excited about the possibilities of what organizations can create if the leaders can nurture the kind of environment that enables that to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you did nurture that. And, you know, sometimes I feel guilty, like I should be paying my clients because of what I learned from them. You know, I think about when you had me advising your whole senior vice president's team at once, you know, and like... The stuff that uh, Todd would teach me, like he got me into this book, Bob Chapman book called Everybody Matters. I've given that out to so many people since, you know, I think about like, I have no very little experience with unions, but like learning from Kim and like how she in like invited the best out of the folks on the other side of the table where it could be super av- adversarial otherwise. And and also in your organization, I like, think of it, like going on tours with Alicia Garrett and, and like all over these places and like i think she was ex- as excited as the mechanics to say like this guy figured out we could but we could back two buses into e- each other and do do the brakes literally 100 percent faster than we were like it's like contagious when you have people like that who care that much. No wonder people want to join her programs and be ambassadors for her system and stuff like that. And so like all sorts of our other clients for our consulting firm would hear these UTA stories. So I, I thank you for paying me anyways, but sometimes I felt like I should be paying <laughs> you guys.
1: Well, I learned a lot from those folks too. And, you know, you, you mentioned Alicia. I remember early, early on, she was a business analyst who we tapped To start doing some team building and lean process improvement work and i don't know how or why it occurred to her but she decided from the very beginning i'm not going to approach this task in terms of figuring things out myself and telling people what the answer is what i'm going to do is expand the perspective of the people doing the work so they can see the outcomes that they're producing and how it relates to the strategy And I'm going to help them build both the analytical skills and the process improvement skills so they can improve their own work. And so every time she would go through working with a team, these people were so fired up. Yes, yes, we achieved the performance improvement. But more than that, they had a whole different perspective and attitude towards their work. And I can keep going with this thought for one more one more idea this was part of the, you know, when I was working on my PhD, I had the chance to do research in the agency and I was able to get the approval to come in and do a very extensive study. And one of the questions we were asking is whether we can transform the relationship that the company has with employees through these process improvement kinds of activities and take employees from kind of seeing their role very narrowly. And you know, I, I do this work and I'm paid a wage to seeing their role much more broadly that I make a difference for my coworkers and the customers and the public. And my job is to do my job and improve my process at the same time. So the question was, can you bring people together in these process improvement kinds of teams and activities? And you know, with that effort, change how they see themselves and what their relationship is with the company. And it was a great study and we learned a lot. And what we found is that the answer is you cannot transform that relationship unless you transform how they do their work and how they interact with each other in their day-to-day job. If you take people out of their job and you give them this experience with a facilitator and, you know, cross-functional people they don't interact with, often those were really intense experiences and people loved them. In fact, they didn't want them to end. But what we found when we studied this and we interviewed people before, during, and after and, and observed, videotaped the, the work of these cross-functional teams, what we found is you change it in that moment. But if you're serious about transforming the relationship with employees and having them be really passionate and really engaged and really bring all of themselves to work, you have to change what happens every single day in their workplace with their supervisor and their coworkers and how their work is structured. That was a really important lesson for us. And I think what you saw with Alicia is she got that and she was trying to build that into everything she was doing.
0: Plus she's always smiling. So everybody wants to hang out with her.
1: You know, I told her early on, I said, I don't know what it is, but people are drawn to you. And so Use that for good because <laughs> you have the kind of personality we want to hang out with her.
0: Yeah, that's great. Listen, I know we're winding down here. There's there's a couple of things. Let's start with this one. It's become I think it's become my favorite my favorite question to ask, but what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? I think
1: a good piece of advice that I've received is to get outside yourself. And and so in the in the darkest days and the and the hardest times, thinking about Other people and what you can do to make their situation better, it has a therapeutic effect on you, on yourself. And, you know, this is something that I know a lot of people are just better at than I am. I'm kind of task and achievement focused and want to get to the end. And, and so I think that's probably the best advice is when, when you're stressed and feel like things are going bad and you may be angry or frustrated just take a little bit of attention and put it to someone else and think about what they're going through and how you could make it a little less problematic. And it cures, it cures you a little bit.
0: Solid advice. It's funny though, how easy it is to stay self-focused at that moment and trying to solve our problem. And yet, I don't know, you hear about like gratitude as a wonder drug, you know, service is one of the best yeah. things we can do for ourselves. You know, they, they sound cliche. They just happen to be so effective, you know? Yeah, they are.
1: And, and for many reasons. So, you know, you go back to how do you create loyalty? Well, you build relationships over a long period of time. And again, it doesn't come naturally to me. I have to write it down on my to-do list. You know, today I'm going to think about these two people and try to help improve their capability.
0: That's great. Well, listen, appreciate all the time you've given with us. Obviously, I'm going to rec- recommend people look you up on uh, LinkedIn and, and check out Third Wind Leadership and, and about your consulting. Anything else you want to leave people with today?
1: No, yeah, feel free to check out the website, 3wl.org. And I am. Really just enjoying what I do now. So I love connecting with people. I really appreciate you reaching out and us reconnecting because taking time to step out of the problems of work and to reflect with other people about those problems has been one of the you know great joys of my life because then we go back into the workplace and do things better and differently so i'm enjoying continuing to learn and look forward to working with a broad range of clients to to learn from them as well
0: well we got to get you to write a book so you can come back on and tell everybody about the book you wrote
1: yeah so i you I mentioned I've got ideas and I'm um, going to start uh, on that so I'll let you know when I'm when I've got my manuscript submitted and we'll come back and do it again and talk about that.
0: Okay, I love it. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Bye now.